Welcome to Third Man Walking. Today I'll be recapping a day of poker I recently played. And this will be a little bit looser than usual because I usually do two takes of these session reviews. And this time I did one take and then accidentally deleted my notes from my phone. So this will be a little bit looser than usual and hopefully it's okay. And if not, the next one won't be done this way. But I think the hands are still pretty interesting, even if the presentation is uh, less pristine than usual. So enjoy. In the last episode, I suggested that I might record some notes from a session that didn't go so well. And I have to say that over the past couple weeks, uh, there have been several sessions to choose from, unfortunately been in sort of an unfortunate pattern lately where I'll play a 510 game that will go well and then I'll move up to 1020 or even I'll be in a 510 game that's playing with a $20 straddle and it's just playing really big and in those sessions I'll do poorly which is not where you want to be it's good that I can just play some 510 and uh, grind that money back and that at least has been pretty reliable. But you'd like it to go the other way. You'd like to run hotter in the bigger games you play, and sometimes that's the way it works out, so nothing to do but wait for the pattern to change. So I'm, I'm sort of playing the 510 as my default game right now, and I'll sit in the 1020 if it looks good. A lot of days it doesn't look good in the casino I'm playing in uh, the most at the moment, and if it's like that, you know, if it's one of those days where it's just seven pros, then I will probably just mentally lull and not play it that day. So I've been bouncing back and forth a little bit between the two games. And like I said, not running especially good when I've moved up to 1020. A lot of that is just run bad. But, you know, I, I have to be open to the possibility that some of it is also just due to the fact that the competition is much better. You know, obviously there's there's lots of pros in that game, but I think you know the, the biggest difference right now in terms of, of the actual hands I've played is that the quality of the, the recreational players is also significantly higher. I've been finding myself in some spots where I, I'm pretty certain I would get paid off in 510 or that uh, I would get a bluff through in 510 and finding that I don't necessarily get the result I want when playing at 1020. And more to the point, I think there are just lots of spots in 510 where I just know what to do. I know to make a fold always in a particular spot because I think it's highly, highly unlikely that my opponent is bluffing. I know that it's safe to go for thin value because I can tell from how a player acts, and this might even be somebody I've never seen before, but I can tell that it's going to be safe to go for thin value against them, that I'm not likely to get check raised. I'll just know that about them and my instincts will be right a lot. It's certainly the case that there are a lot of players in LA poker who can make your life difficult in spots like that where things are inherently a little bit uncertain, but there are just lots of spots in the lower stakes and mid stakes games, even in LA where overall, I would say the, the caliber of the recreational players there for as much action as they give is pretty high where 
you can kind of just think, is this guy messing with me? And the answer will be like, no, I don't think he is. And you'll know how to proceed from there. In 1020, it's not always so certain, not only because I don't have huge samples against a lot of the players who typically are in that game, but because they're just better players. So, you know, that's tricky and it's going to add to your variance. And when you're not running as well, those stretches of run bad are going to be deeper and longer. So I'll talk a little bit about a session I played earlier this week. I dig a pretty big hole for myself in the first big hand of the day in which uh, there's a pro who raises onto the gun and in the 10-20 we're playing nine-handed, whereas most games in LA right now are playing eight-handed. So this one we're playing nine and a pro raises under the gun to $60. I'm in the cutoff with ace-king offsuit and I think I can mix here between calling and three-betting. With a couple of pros behind, one advantage to sometimes calling here is that I have a hand that doesn't necessarily need to give up and go away if somebody squeezes behind, which in 1020 they frequently will. So this time I do go for the call and the small blind, uh, who is a complete unknown to me at this point, I've never played with this player ever and have no notes on them, is the only other caller. So three ways here, uh, me, the under the gun pro and a small blind who is, I presume is a, is a recreational player. About 200 in the pot and the flop comes ace king 10 with the ace and king of diamonds. So I have top two pair with ace king on ace king 10. The small blind checks under the gun bets 120. Not a board, I don't think, where I'm going to be doing tons of raising generally because under the gun can have any strong hand here, aces, kings, tens, queen, jack, as well as all combinations of ace, king. And I'm sort of limited in terms of, of what I can have here. I can have queen, jack or uh, pocket tens. I don't think ace, king is probably good enough to raise here when we're playing 200 big blinds deep or so. So I just make the call and the small blind does as well. So now 560 in the pot headed to the turn, still three ways. And it's an offsuit seven. Uh, so now ace, king, 10, seven with the ace and king of diamonds. And I have ace, king offsuit. It checks to me now. So the small blind checks, the preflop raiser checks. And now it's on me. I bet 370. And now the small blind snap raises to $2,000, leaving himself about $1,000 behind. The pro folds. And now it's back on me. And I have a sinking feeling already that this is not good. But I don't think I can really, I mean, these sinking feelings only mean so much. I mean, you can only trust your gut so much. And I just have a really strong hand here. And I think that, you know, a lot of players could have a wide variety of potential hands here. Some two pairs, you know, some sort of a seven suited. There's a bunch of straight draws out there. Nine, eight of diamonds is a hand that might make some sense. Maybe something like jack nine of diamonds or queen nine of diamonds or something like that that is is now going to take an aggressive line on the turn. Something like jack 10 of diamonds or queen 10 of diamonds is out there as well. A whole variety of diamond combos and two pairs that I am ahead of, along with, of course, queen jack is the main hand I'm worried about. Obviously, aces and kings. My opponent should be three betting pre-flop. Pocket sevens, he should be folding on the flop. So I'm not worried about sets really, and I'm beating all other two pairs. So I'm worried about really squarely queen jack 
and then I think I'm ahead of everything else he would do this with. I do, however, think he has Queen Jack a lot when when he does this snap raise like this. I just had this feeling. So I do decide to go with it. He has about $3,000 total. So I shove it in, uh, he calls, and does have Queen Jack, and I don't improve on the river. So uh, I'm stuck a few thousand dollars pretty much right out of the gate. Now, one problem that has existed for me, and I don't know if it's necessarily a problem long-term, I suspect it is not, but one problem in the short term I have had with this 1020 game is that on every collection, they do a double board bomb pot. So I talked a little bit about double board PLO bomb pots when I was in Texas about 10 episodes ago. These are just double board no limit hold'em pots and never played these before. So these are these are bomb pots, of course, which I've played a lot and which I enjoy, but with two boards. So the tricky thing about them is it's really rare that you're going to be doing extremely well on both boards. And I think the first couple of times I played this game, I, I was a little bit overcautious because you don't want to get in a situation where you're probably going to be mostly playing one board of the two. And if you have less than the nuts on that one board, there's always the possibility that someone else in the hand could have the nuts on that board and also be beating you on the other board. And that seems like a very bad outcome. I was probably playing these pots a a bit too weakly to start, but I don't know. And no, I, I suspect nobody does. There's no efficient way to study these kinds of hands. Exactly. It's a new form of poker. The, the pros are, you know, to some extent searching for strategies in the same way the recreational players are. I mean, some of the principles from regular no limit hold'em apply, but some of them do not because it's a bomb pot and because you have to be playing two boards and the entire concepts of trying to get folds and trying to get value work completely differently in these types of pots than they do in typical no limit hold'em pots. And just as a, a sort of indication of what I mean, there's there's one uh, regular recreational player in the pool who I'm pretty sure is playing these pots either much better or much worse than everyone else in the pool. And I have no idea which. He's either playing them much better or much worse. Not sure. <laughs> and what he's doing is basically just playing a lot of pots and fighting for them. And I don't know how that very loose strategy would work over say many thousands of hands because I don't have the sample and I haven't seen a lot of showdowns. I do think that a looser strategy in double board, no limit hold'em bomb pots is pretty clearly better than a looser strategy in say the double board PLO bomb pots that I played when I was in Texas. Those in some ways are kind of simpler because what you really want to do is make sure that you have the nuts on one board. It's obviously more complicated than that, but that's a big part of it. And because you've got four cards in PLO, it's not really all that hard to have the nuts on one board. When you have a double board no limit hold'em bomb pot, it's still pretty hard to have nuts because you still just have that one two-card hand. So you're going to have to fight for a lot of pots where you have less than the nuts because if you don't, the $100 you're paying every dealer change is really just going to eat you alive. And what I what I ended up doing as a way of just sort of getting a sense of what to do in these hands is actually going home, taking out a physical deck of cards, dealing out a bunch of hands face up and then dealing out two boards and just seeing what everybody had on each board just to get a sense of what a strong hand even is. And 
how best to approach it against the collection of hands you're likely to be up against. So yeah, these are really tricky and they're very high variance also. They're $100 and so when we're playing nine-handed, there's $900 in the pot preflop. I typically sit in the game with $3,500 to $4,000. So, you know, 175 to 200 big blinds in, in a normal no limit hold'em hand, but it gets really shallow really fast when $900 goes into the pot preflop. So in this one, I have pocket kings and I'm in late position and we go straight to two flops. They come out king, queen, 10, rainbow. So I have top set on the, the top board and on the bottom board, it's seven, six, three with a flush draw. So I have top set and an over pair and it checks to the low jack seat who bets $600. I'm in the hijack and just make the call. The, the player I mentioned earlier, who's very active in these pots is in the small blind. And I would like to give him the chance to come along if he wants with a hand this strong. So it folds to him. Uh, he calls and then it folds around to another player in middle position who goes all in for something like $5,000, I think. Uh, so he covers me in any case. The low jack, who is the player who initially bet the 600, then goes all in for something like $10,000. And I have 3,200 or something like that and don't feel like I have any choice but to call off here. I mean, there is some chance that I could be in trouble here if one of the players has ace jack or jack nine. But it's also possible that the other two players are playing the other board. You know, somebody has pocket sevens and somebody has five, four or something like that on the seven, six, three board. In which case I'm just getting half the pot to myself. It's also possible that somebody has two pair or a lower set on the top board. And even if I'm in really bad shape, of course, there's the possibility that the top board could pair. I don't know why I'm talking about this for so long. This is obviously just going to be a call. Uh, so I do make the call and the player in the small blind folds. So we're, we're all in three ways now. And I am against ace jack and pocket sevens. So one player has the nuts on the top board. The other player has the set on the bottom board. So I need the top board to pair and don't have a ton of hope aside from hitting the, the case king on the bottom board. So I do not improve on the top board and get stacked. And so at this point, I'm down $7,000 within an hour and a half or so. And uh, continue to get in some, some rough spots. So a bit later, I raise from the hijack to $60 with ace king with the ace of diamonds and a recreational player calls on the button. So 150 in the pot, I have ace king with the ace of diamonds and it comes king three deuce with a three and deuce of diamonds. So I bet 60 here. Uh, against what is presumably a pretty wide range. Uh, my opponent raises to $210 and I make the call. So now 570 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit eight. So king, three, deuce, eight with two diamonds and I have ace king with the ace of diamonds. I check, he bets $420 and I again make the call. So now there's 1410 in the pot and the river is the nine of diamonds completing the front door flush. So again, I have ace king with the ace of diamonds and the board is king, three deuce, eight, nine with now three diamonds. So I check it over and now my opponent bets $500. And the first thing I think is, okay, can I shove here? 
And I think the answer is probably not. I would be shoving as a bluff because I have the blocker to the nuts with the ace of diamonds. But I don't know if that's a great play. If my opponent were out of position and he could be betting this $500 into $1,400 as sort of a block, then all of a sudden shoving becomes very attractive. But since I was first to act and then he bet, he could have just checked back and he didn't do it. Uh, It makes me think that he's probably pretty strong here, has probably at least a set. Picking out bluffs is not super easy here. Obviously, the bluffs, I mean, the bluffs would probably be something like 5-4 or 6-5, and I guess he would have those hands occasionally, but probably not enough that calling is super attractive. So I think that going back and forth between the three options, there's maybe a little bit of merit to all of them, but I think fold is just the best. I'm not trying to move this player off a set or flush. So I do make the fold, which is a little bit annoying, but I think is is just kind of what you have to do. And uh, in the last big hand here at 1020, there's a, a, a pro who raises to $60 in middle position. I'm in the cutoff with pocket kings with the king of diamonds and the king of spades and re-raise to $210 and it folds back to him and he makes the call. So pocket kings, king of diamonds, king of spades, so 450 in the pot and the flop comes 10, six deuce with the 10 and six of diamonds. He checks and we're about $4,000 effective, which is deep enough that I think there is some merit to proceeding with caution because I think my opponent would have every combination of pocket tens and pocket sixes as played this way, a bunch of other hands too, but certainly any combination of top or second set. So I think betting or checking would be fine. And uh, I think I would mix between the two. And in this spot, I go with the check. So still 450 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the jack of spades creating a backdoor spade draw. So again, I have king of diamonds, king of spades, and the board is now 10, six deuce jack with two diamonds and two spades. So he bets 260. And now I'm in a spot where my opponent can have tens, sixes or pocket jacks. I still have a strong hand with kings, of course, but I think I have a super clear call here. So I do make the call. Now there's 970 in the pot and the river is an offsuit nine. So now 10, six, deuce, jack nine, both flush draws have bricked. He bets 450, a little less than half the pot. I don't think my hand is strong enough to raise here. And obviously folding is going to be out of the question after I play pocket kings this way. So I do make the call and beat pocket queens, which is uh, a little bit frustrating because uh, like I said, I think I would mix between betting and checking on the flop. And this time I elect to check and it probably ends up costing me money. Although maybe not. I think if I, if I do bet the flop and get called, I probably should be checking the turn quite a lot, this exact turn with the jack. So I probably get two streets of value either way, but um, maybe in betting the flop myself, I do it on my terms. I size up a little bit on the river and uh, maybe get a couple hundred dollars worth of extra value. The game got pretty bad after this and I moved down to 510. Did end up making some money back at 510, uh, but played some pretty frustrating hands there too. In the biggest hand, I play at 510. 
Under the Gun raises to 35 from a stack of 390 total. I'm in the small blind with aces and re-raised to $120, which is a little bit smaller than I would raise to typically, but I make it a bit smaller here out of position because my opponent is so short. The big blind cold calls, which is interesting. And now Under the Gun won the preflop raiser jams for $390 uh, with the big blind at this point, I don't want him going anywhere when I have pocket aces. So I just call and the big blind just calls as well. So there's 1165 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes 653 with the five and three of spades. And uh, as with the hand last in the last episode where I have pocket kings on a low connected board, I'm not super worried about anything that might happen here, at least not from the big blind, the player who still has chips to play for. When my opponent cold calls my three bet and then calls the 390, he's not really saying he has a hand like pocket sixes or pocket fives. He's saying he has a hand like queens through nines or maybe ace king. So I think I can just bet pretty freely on a wide variety of runouts here and not worry too much about my aces getting cracked by the player who's deep. Uh, I don't want to use a big size here, though, because I, there, there's no incentive to bluff. Because I would be betting into a dry side pot, I should have just really strong hands when I bet, and so I don't want to bet sizes that are going to make him fold. So I bet $260 and my opponent calls. Uh, then, at this point, the player who's all in, the under-the-gun one player, stands up and pretends to leave. So I'm already worried that I'm actually behind this player. I, like, I don't know exactly what this means, but a, a lot of players will do this as some sort of fake out, even though it's kind of pointless. Like, we're all in for his stack anyway. So now there's 1165 in the main pot and 520 on the side. And the turn is a three. And I jam all in for the big blinds last $500. And he quickly folds. I table my hand and it turns out uh, I lose the main pot to pocket fives, which, you know, stuck in $390 preflop. So, you know, what can you do? So I lose something like $6,200 in 1020, win about $1,000 in 510, uh, mostly by picking off smaller, less interesting pots and end up down about $5,200 for the day. And yeah, a, a little annoying. And um, you'd like to see yourself do well in the bigger games you play, but some days that's just not the way it works. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.